So made this YouTube video and it happened, obviously it didn't get us customers, but what it did do was it made its way to the CEO of the company that folded. And he's like, dude, I was in New York at the time. He's like, come to Boston. If you attempt to do what you're going to try to do, you will fail. I can show you a way to where you will succeed with 100% certainty. And it's just like a weird thing for someone to tell you, but like music to my ears, because I'm starting to realize that like nothing I'm doing is <laughs> effective. You're listening to Adam Robinson, our guest on today's episode of the Subscription Entrepreneur Podcast. Before I introduce him, I'd like to say thank you for tuning in to today's show. We're back from the hiatus we took over the holidays and are excited to share our first episode of 2020 with you. Adam is an entrepreneur who has tried his hand in many different ventures, most notably two pieces of marketing technology called Robly and Get Emails. As you'll hear in this episode, Adam's journey as an entrepreneur has been a harrowing adventure. He's experienced the full spectrum of entrepreneurship from spectacular successes to heart-wrenching failures. He joins us on the show today to share the most important lessons he's learned from the highs and the lows. And you'll get to follow along as he details the trouble-laden path that finally led him to his golden opportunity. Regardless of where you are on your journey, I have a strong feeling you'll resonate with Adam and the lessons he shares. Whether you're filled to the brim with optimism about your new idea or down in the dumps after facing yet another failure, Adam's stories and advice will help put everything in perspective. As always, I'm your host, Eric Turnison, and this is episode 138 of the Subscription Entrepreneur Podcast. Welcome to the show, Adam. Well, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so good to have you. So just to kick things off here, can you give us the 30,000 foot view of who you are and what you're doing right now? Absolutely. So I think at this point, I would consider myself an entrepreneur. I graduated from school in 2003. I was a credit default swap trader for 10 years. I traded the real estate stuff at Lehman Brothers. They made a movie about it called The Big Short. It's a great job. And then my buddies in the apartment that I lived in in New York started Vimeo and College Humor in the apartment that I was living in. So I watched Vimeo at one point go from like wireframes to like, I mean, it was top 10 site maybe at one point and just got the entrepreneurial bug. I like wanted so badly to like be a startup guy like them in this really cool apartment and like have everybody, you know, young people working there and all that stuff. And so in 2011, I left finance, took me about three years to put together a product that was saleable to the market. And that first one was Robly. And I can get in later about how we did it. It's an email service provider. And through this weird journey that we had, it like rocket shipped to basically 5 million in revenue and then totally stopped like two years later. And then for the last few years, I've just been banging my head against the wall trying to figure out in this this space, which is just so difficult, email marketing. And there's yeah. these brands that are such incredible companies and brands and product people, you know, how to differentiate, how to grow. And, you know, I, I think for me, when I started, I was reading this like 37 Signal stuff and the Tim Ferriss stuff. And I was like, you know, the opposite of my life at the time was this idea that you could create a software business that was super lean. It would make millions of dollars and you could live where if you wanted to and like not go into an office. And then the funny thing is you get that <laughs> and like it's not exciting anymore because it's just not growing, which we will definitely cover later in the podcast. I sort of had three epic massive fails in a row, three years in a row, and then finally stumbled across this current product, which is selling unbelievably well called Get Emails. And it is an identification technology that basically like we give you a script 
you put it on your website, we can identify up to 35% of the anonymous traffic. And through this process, which I'll explain later, we can connect that to customer records and pass you full customer records of those people that didn't fill out a form. And in the US, it's can spam compliant. Can't do it in Europe or Canada. Awesome. That's that's great. Going to the beginning, you mentioned being in the apartment with the Vimeo guys and catching the bug. Now, being a finance guy, so your background wasn't in business. Your background wasn't in anything related to entrepreneurship. Oh my goodness. How no. did that play out? Like, what did you see in what they were doing? Like, which aspects were you most attracted to? You know, these guys, they were like kind of mini celebrities in New York. Like, and not to say that I was very attracted to that aspect of it, but like, you know, the, the year two, they got written up in the New Yorker and, you know, the Barry Diller, IC bought their company and there were these, you know, part of it was there was just a lot of excitement around these guys in general. And it seemed so fun what they were doing. You know, they have this lip dub video they made and put on Vimeo, one of the first ever Vimeo lip dubs. And it's, they got this big office in Union Square after they left our apartment. And it's like really cool loft. And like everybody was, was young and happy and they were having so much fun. And the job that I had was incredible in a sense that we just did financially way better than the generation before us as traders. And we had way more responsibility just because of what happened during that time. But it seemed as though they were getting something else out of their job besides just like extracting money out of the system. It was hard to really identify what it was without being there every day. The only job I had ever had was just like putting this tie on and sitting on a trading desk and like, there's no management. I never interviewed anybody. No one ever taught me anything. It was just like, you either figure this out and make money or you're gone. So it sounds like it was like a lifestyle and a purpose thing. I think so. I mean, I was just kind of wanted to be an entrepreneur for whatever reason. I don't know why. I read a bunch of entrepreneur books in college, but then like, you know, when you graduate in 2003, if you want to be an entrepreneur, I went to Rice. A lot of them went to work at Bain and McKinsey. And then there were these banking jobs that other people took. And it was just like, if you could get one of those jobs, you took it and just like figured it out later. I think it was something I always wanted to do. I don't really know why. I think probably because I respected a lot of the entrepreneurs that I knew growing up without even really realizing it's just there, there were leaders, you know, there were important parts of the community. This is kind of getting into a question I was just going to ask you about what is an entrepreneur? Because you, you mentioned in the beginning, and I resonate with, I feel like now after doing this for so many years, I might be an entrepreneur, or still not sure, you know, like, <laughs> so what is it? That is also a good question. Is it something static even? Probably not. I would probably say if someone is in the game, meaning just like, they're doing it. They're starting a company, building a product. It's getting the majority of their attention. I know some people don't have the luxury of having saved money and they have to work at the same time they're doing it. But where do you draw the line, I guess, is the great question. Right. So you're saying like, if you're walking it, then you are. I think that that's the case. How do you define success? That's different for, for everybody. You know, We could all agree that Elon Musk has been a successful entrepreneur, I think. Sure. There's always these like obvious examples, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, mm-hmm. you know, whoever, but that's, that necessarily sometimes can't be helpful to compare yourself to those people because then you may think, oh, well, there's no way I can be an entrepreneur, but it's such a varied and diverse thing about, I like your definition of like, if you're, you're walking the path and you're the entrepreneur because it's so much is about the path. And it's also like, 
how are you going to handle these things that happen that don't feel good? Are you going to keep going or are you going to go back to that job? Are you going to switch to doing something else? So you mentioned your first go, your first thing that you started to do was Robley. What was it like to do that in the beginning? What were those early days like and where were your major challenges? I would say my biggest challenge, which was unbeknownst to me, is that if you've done well in finance, I feel like a lot of people leave that job thinking that they, just with this false overconfidence, you're making more money than your friends, you're smart, everybody around you is smart, like, and I think you really undervalue these skills that your friends are getting at these other jobs. As an example, I think it's just very common that if you ask 10 traders who do really well, if they could manage a restaurant effectively, 10 guys would be like, heck yeah, no problem. Like I could totally handle that job, do it with my eyes closed. I think it's just the value system. It values you know, the perceived amount of money that you extract from the system. And that's kind of all that matters. And I think it's, it's your, your trading securities in these businesses. So you think that you know things about about the businesses themselves, but you don't. Like, I think there's a lot of things that contribute to that psychology, but I think it's very common psychology. And that was definitely the biggest problem, which became evident later to me. You don't realize it when it's happening. So the problem being that... Ridiculously overconfident okay. in, <laughs> in myself. So my plan, which was a horrible one, was I had this, I had this kind of mentor guy who was a sales guy at Lehman. And he, he, like, while he was sitting there selling bonds, he had like all of these investments in these other businesses. And he was just involved in a ton of other stuff. And I thought it was like kind of a cool and interesting life to have this call it like a mini private equity fund. And you're like kind of sitting at the top of it and you are somewhere passively or actively involved in like four or five things. That was what I thought I was going to do. I'd save some money. So I was just like, I'm going to invest in some stuff. And I'm going to hang out with people that are starting things. And I'm just, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to like run any of them. I mean, now just the idea of that makes my stomach turn. You know, I just think it's like everything is focused, right? Like the breakthroughs come when you're just thinking about nothing else for months on end, in my opinion. I don't know. I think some people are really good at this whole, you know, whatever. Steve Jobs, he can do too. Elon Musk, he can do too. I don't think many other people can actually effectively do two things. So that was like a disaster, made some horrible investments, just wasted a bunch of time, wasted a bunch of money. But I mean, at the same time, I'm learning, you know, I'm realizing how little I know at the same time, which is really helpful. And then how Robley actually got started was it was just going to be one of these things that I did. And my brother and I were going to split the funding. We were going to hire this other guy that I worked with named James, who also wanted to get out of finance. No prior experience in anything, but for some reason, I thought that he could just like run it. Like I said about the restaurant thing, it's like, oh yeah, he could like do this, smart, you know, whatever. Like, why wouldn't he be able to do that, right? So my brother is an entrepreneur also. He was using a product called RatePoint for email marketing and customer reviews. They shut their website down and said, they like announced they were, they were going out of business and then they said, download your, your data. We're taking the website offline in seven days. Seven days. Seven days, yeah. They raised 25 million bucks. It was just a weird situation. So my brother was like, this is weird. I really thought this product was useful. This guy spent a ton of money finding customers. You know, you're looking for stuff to do. Like, let's try to get this thing built on the cheap and see if we can go find some of his customers and, and make something of that, which at the time sounded good enough for me. 
to add to this portfolio of, you know, things that I was really excited about that almost all went to zero. <laughs> so meanwhile, I'm, I'm reading these books about content marketing and it's like 2012. They're just like, oh, they made me believe that all I had to do was create YouTube and blog content and it would just, just put it on the internet and people would find it and they'd buy my service, right? Like these beginner books about anything just oversimplify. They get you excited. They get you to buy books. They get you to tell other people about it when you don't really know. So made this YouTube video and it happened. Obviously, it didn't get us customers. But what it did do was it made its way to the CEO of the company that folded that we were going to try to copy. And he's like, dude, I was in New York at the time. He's like, come to Boston. If you attempt to do what you're going to try to do, you will fail. I can show you a way to where you will succeed with 100% certainty. All right. And it's just like a weird thing for someone to tell you. Yeah. But like music to my ears, because I'm starting to realize that like nothing I'm doing is <laughs> effective. So get on a train. I go with this guy who also horribly inexperienced dude I hired from Barclays. We sit down with this guy and he's like, I can't say this company's name because they sued me a couple of years later, which I'll get to. But there is a huge email marketing company, the pioneer in the space in Boston. They're right down the road. The guy says, I'm not going to tell you too much because my co-founder is now starting a data business, but they're leaving a huge amount of data across the internet about their customers. Just go look, you'll find it. I just did this, build a scraper, build a call center, build a product, make a price in performance compelling sort of pitch for these people. You will get enough customers to switch over. That'll be a nice cash flowing business. It's super sticky then who knows what's next, right? Maybe you start a hosting company, maybe you start whatever, but like that'll get you a base, bootstrap it, keep it small, keep it tight, whatever. So again, music to my ears. And then we go back, we start digging and (laughs) James, my co-founder figured out that they were creating community. And this is like pre, like built with and and data nice hadn't really taken off yet. You know, people weren't really doing this like spider-based selling. It wasn't ubiquitous yet. So Turns out they were creating a community page for every single one of their paying customers. And they were massive at the time. They had 500,000 customers, something like that. Maybe not every single one, maybe half of them, I don't know. But they're in the URL, there was a six-digit unencrypted number that if you stepped it up by one, it was a dead page. And if you stepped it up by two, it was the next guy. First name, last name, zip code, business name, right? So this is just like jackpot. You can send it overseas, find a phone number, and get it sent back to you. So we built this scraper that over like three months, it cut us like 225,000 of these records, just anonymous IPs and just poking them, like, you know, just downloading the page very stealthy or whatever. And then came the disastrous product decisions we made. So this is one of my favorite things. So my brother, playing at Stanford, this, this guy, Tate Planning, who's my CTO now, worked with him for the last seven years. He's just an unbelievable developer, specimen, human being, never burns out, fastest guy in the world, just unbelievable. You know, he has weaknesses too, can't project manage for anything. But we had this guy who was willing to work with us, but for some reason, against all of the advice of my very successful entrepreneur friends in New York at the time, who I was seeking advice from actively, we decided to try to get the site built on the cheap by this agency in India, which I think a lot of people make themselves. Like, But I understand, like, I just can't, I can't even get into my own head at that point. Like, I understand a major problem for non-technical co-founders is actually convincing, especially if you're a first-timer, especially if you have no relevant experience, right? Like, 
convincing a good engineer. Well, how do you even know if they're a good engineer, first of all? And then convincing that person to work with you and like pursue this crazy vision. I get using an agency in that context, but like I had this guy that we couldn't use. Yet still we wasted, you know, six months building the team in India. And then we, we kind of hired Tate to look over and he's like, honestly, I'm just going to take a month and rebuild this entire thing. And he did. <laughs> I think you hear that story more often. Well, it happened with me. It wasn't India, it was Russia, but I had to thrash whatever I had them do. And it was basically the, the motivation to be like, okay, well, I can't get somebody else to do it. So we just got to roll up our sleeves and do it ourselves. And then you just bang it out. Mm-hmm. So the product took, I say that we're bootstrapped, but we weren't, we aren't really bootstrapped. Like I ended up, you know, I'd saved money trading and my brother had just sold half of his company to private equity company. So I ended up putting a million bucks in this thing over, it was slow, but over like three years, I'd put a million bucks in just month by month. And my brother had done the same thing and I didn't take a salary for like, oh my God, I don't know. Pay myself for the first time in like 2015 or something like that. So I was without a salary for four years. Uh, but we were bootstrapped in a sense that we didn't take two million on day one. Like the reason we kept pawning money in is because eventually, once we launched the product, once we figured out the sales engine, we had this machine that we were just sticking dollars in, and it was spitting out five dollars. So at that point, it's like, you know, we started burning more and more because why wouldn't you at that point? And then eventually, we sort of you know, whatever, got to cash flow positive. And then, so it worked really well. The dude was right. You know, we came up with this value proposition, which was, so the customer of this vendor that we were sort of poaching from, they're brick and mortar, like baby boomer, non-e-commerce type people. So think flower shops and and stuff like that. Just the, the worst audience to build cool software for. They're hard to reach. They're not online. Like it's just a tough, tough audience. But the, the one thing that we noticed was they were really focused on their open rate, you know? So we came up with this, I was looking at, you know, in, in the email world too, there's all these spammers that are floating around they'll all sign up for your service. They'll try to send, you got to put stuff in place so, so they don't and don't run your IPs or whatever. But I saw what this guy was doing. He was sending and then he'd send it the next day to the people that didn't open it the day before. And it like worked really well. So we built this little automation tool called OpenGen that it just sent the first time as a normal campaign. And then it had a little box. You wrote a new subject line in and then set another campaign out to go one to five days later, but only the people that didn't open it the first time. And that would get you more than 50% increase in total opens, no matter what. So, I mean, if you send newsletters like less than a few times a week, you should definitely do this regardless because it doesn't hurt your deliverability and it'll just get more eyeballs on the thing. But we basically went in with a, with a value proposition to these guys, 50% more opens for half the price. And then we'd get them on a demo and like upsell them and cold calling never would have worked had we not had this list because our price point was like, it started at 15, like our first subscription we were selling average 15. And then eventually over the years, it's made its way up to like 50 or 60 or something like that. Yeah, we had this really effective machine. And I thought, you know, we were getting other data from another part of their site that I knew was going to be worse data, but I just didn't really know how bad but it was an abundance, right? So instead of being paying customers, instead of having first and last name, it was really just like the business names of people that were signing up for the, a free trial. And these are like, you know, Bob's Coffee Shop. You don't know where it is. And But I tested this list out with our best guys and it looked like it was going to work, you know? It looked like it was going to close to work. And then like ramped this whole sales thing. And by the way, I forgot to mention, this is all happening 
in this apartment that I was living in. It was a big apartment. These guys, it was four dudes and they were living in this 5,000 square foot loft in Tribeca. But like kind of one chair by one chair, I woke up one day and I had 39 people coming to my house every day, smiling and dying. And like the kind of problems that you have to solve, I didn't want all of these people using, we, I, had a, I had a master bedroom and a master bathroom and there were two other bathrooms. And these dudes were, it was all, it was pretty much all guys just cause like 200 dials a day sales, like who's applying for that job? It's just mostly male. And <laughs> had two bathrooms and there was this laundry room that had a big sink in it and it had a door and a lock. So I, I had a plumber and I was like, how much, like, what do I need to do to get a urinal in here? He's like, well, you know, it's going to cost you three grand, but you know what I do if I were you? And he takes the faucet and just turns it on and off. <laughs> He's like, I just have to be in the sink. That's extra corroboration that it was only guys working there. I know, I know, <laughs> but just hilarious hilarious memories from that time period, you know. Meanwhile, I like, I think we got a million more leads and we need 50 salespeople and I'm like ramping the sales force and all this stuff and everybody's all excited and I'm promising everybody the world and stuff. And we get everybody calling this list and like people aren't even picking up, you know. It's like so far from being a viable business right. to have all of these people sitting around trying to acquire customers this way. That like at that point, you know, we're just like, well, I guess we just have to fire everybody. So correct me if I'm wrong, but it may just be how you're telling the story, but it sounds a lot like you were like flying by the seat of your pants. Like, was there a lot of planning going on? I mean, no, I wouldn't have known right. how, to, how to do that. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit better now, but when I go over some of the stuff I've done since, listeners may argue. It's hard to describe the sensation of the first time something actually starts working, right? Like, I mean, I have comparable experience. I mean, it wasn't to the scale. I wasn't 39 people in a Tribeca apartment using a sink as a urinal. (laughs) (laughs) You know you're doing something right when that happens, right? But there is this aspect of like, when you first, he reminds me of this quote from The Alchemist. He's something to the effect of like, when you first make a decision, all you're doing is committing to jump into a stream or a flow that you don't know where it's going to take you. Right. So you start, you're like, okay, I'm in this, I'm doing it. And then things just start happening. You, you basically, as things happen, you just have to follow what you can. But it's very admirable, in my opinion, personally, that in your situation, that you were just able to grow that quickly and scale that quickly. For me, it's always been a challenge getting people involved, mm-hmm. hiring people and adding people to the team has always been a very like, piecemeal process for me. Yeah. The concept of like needing 50 people and then trying to go get 50 people like boggles my mind. I have no idea how you would even approach that. I don't know if I did it right or not, but I think the unique situation that I was in was the only way that I was going to make that first stage work was with these cold callers. So I read every book on sales. I mean, I read like, I would say within a year of quitting my job in finance, I was very aware of how little I knew, you know, like the the confidence thing went from like here, like down to there. And it was just like, it's been just like a slow and steady build ever since. Calling was going to be the only thing that we did. So it was just like, I read every book, talked to as many people as possible. Like I got a couple great mentors. I got a guy who was running like a 600 person. He had worked for Rocket Internet and created the Groupon in Brazil and sold it to Brazil. And that's just literally like one of these. And he was running like a 600 person operation at ZocDoc because he was CEO, he was buddies with the CEO of ZocDoc and just doing that for a while. And he was instrumental in sort of like, I had this crazy idea when, when I started that 
we would build these great systems and we wouldn't need great people. I don't know where I got this idea. I don't know where it came from. I don't know why more people didn't push back. And they're like, but this guy did on day one. He's like, why would you not try to get the best sales guy you possibly could on day one? Like that seems like, why would you get interns from NYU to like call through this? You know, which was the first thing that I did, of course, because it was the wrong thing. So, yeah, I mean, I don't like adding people now. I hate the process. I hate having to like go find those people. I always feel like my network's not good enough or big enough or whatever. I feel like I'm rushed in doing it when I have to do it. It's just, I don't, I don't like the process, but that was just a weird situation because there was no other way. I had a guy telling me, I I know this is going to work because I did it 18 months ago. Like here's the list, figure out how to build a call center and you know, whatever. You know, my understanding of how things went with Robley, I mean, obviously all this is going on. You grow to a certain point. You talked about earlier how there's just tons of people in the space, but there was a point where something unexpected came out of that experience, something that led you to the next project, get emails. So can you talk a little bit about that period of time and how that happened? Sure. So I had to basically fire 30 people at once because this list wasn't performing. And then all of a sudden we were really profitable because we had just broken even with all of our staff and then we whacked the entire staff. And it was worst day of my life. But at the same time, you know, in the months after, it was like this sense of relief, like, wow, like I don't have to fight this battle for the foreseeable future. We wanted to basically, it was one of these things where like, look at what we're good at. We know how to build one of these highly transactional call centers. Let's see if we can pre-sell products into different markets, not even having it and get any traction. And, you know, it was kind of like, it was a dark time for me and the co-founders because, you know, we're not the ones making these calls. We're trying to come up with ideas. Like we're in this place that there used to be 40 people at when there's only like seven or eight, it feels dead. You know, of course, none of that worked. I mean, we came up with like a product for, I don't know, Mr. Fix-It guys that no one cared about. So you're doing like product research, basically. We were trying to do that. And Robley was still running at this point. Robley is still running. The same thing, yeah. It's, right, is still running. It was... Exactly. It's just spitting off cash and we're just trying to figure out. We, we wanted to keep... You know, if you hire a ton of salespeople, there's a few just total rock stars you want to keep your hands on if you can. So we tried to keep these guys around by doing this. It's like, well, here's what we're going to try to do. It's this product called blah, 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 and you're going to sell it like this and see if you can get people on horn. So... We liked reviews a lot. Like I really believe in the power of reviews and we were trying to kind of get something that would automate that process. That was the first thing we tried to do, automate that process for like brick and mortar businesses. That's not really working. Then we're like, you know what? I think our lives would probably be a lot better if we got even smaller, stopped doing this and just went remote and like chilled for a bit. So we did that. We decided to do that. We did that in the middle of 2016. In 2017, I got rid of my apartment. And, you know, I kind of was digital nomad for a bit. Then in the beginning of 2017, this guy from that company who we stole these customers from, they got acquired. And <clears throat> guy calls me. It's like, hey, there's this partner program that, that we spent $50 million building that they're just going to cut right now. And I think you could pick it up pretty easily. So I talked to all the people that I talk to whenever I'm making a big decision. And they're like, yeah, it sounds pretty good, you know? So like 
hire this guy. He's expensive. We go on this like $60,000 road trip to meet all these people. It's one of those things where you're like two days in, you're just like, oh my goodness, like this is not going to work. Like, I don't know exactly why or how, but like they were achieving something with this that was very different than what my goals are, which is profitable unit economic basis, customer acquisition, right? They were just using it as a branding effort, as an education effort, like whatever. But like, yeah, we'll, we'll keep going with this. What's the worst thing that happened? Maybe we can get some of their like whales and it'll be worth it. And then worst case scenario, we let the guy go. You know, if we got another 50 or 60 grand a month revenue, fine. Not only did that not happen, the guy had convinced me to, to hire him in the middle of his non-compete. He had a year non-compete. And he's like, ah, it's a California employee. It's unenforceable, right? <laughs> I mean, come on. I'm so mad at myself. So of course they sue me for kind of nothing, right? Like enough to to be something that a judge wouldn't just dismiss it immediately. You know, I think I was doing something else with their API. Like we were migrating contacts automatically when people switched over or something like that. And like they said, it's cease and desist. And I didn't, I didn't cease and desist quick enough or something like that. So it was a couple of things and just the dramatic nature of what they said, you know, the single digit million company. And at the time they were doing 350, like they're like, this is doing irreparable damage to our brand and our just nonsense. Right. And then of course, so their strategy the whole time is like, keep me in a lawsuit for a year. And by that time, I will have gotten tired of doing this and I'll be on to something else. And they can sort of keep these people loosely engaged, not as formally engaged as they were before, which was right. So that ended up costing like 300 grand. The only reason I really, I think it's interesting is because when you're looking at upside downside and scenarios, like this was not even something that was on my radar as a possibility, like that I would get sued. And it would cost me 300 grand over the course of a year. I mean, it's like just agonizing, you know, like they'd say they wanted something, you'd like collect all this information, send it back. They'd wait four weeks and then just write something totally different. But eventually got out of that. And the next thing that I was on, which was also a horrible mistake and waste of time, was I heard a podcast of this guy in the email marketing space. His name is Ross Andrew. Yeah, a company called Mara Post. And it was Nathan Latka's podcast. And all you talk about on Nathan Latka's podcast is like your revenues and stuff. I don't know why anybody would do it other than if they're selling their business or they want investment or like whatever. This guy's like, I get $9,000 a month per subscriber. And I'd heard of them a couple times before. And he's like, I got 350 customers. And I mean, it just sounded unreal. Like he was exaggerating about the size of his company even. I was like, hold on. So he's got like 10 salespeople like 30 million in revenue, 300 customers, 10 customers. I'm like, this looks great. Like really looks amazing. Enterprise grade ESP, you know? And then I started doing some research. I started really just like pinging everyone that no longer worked for him that ever did sales and marketing to try to figure out what was going on. Because my thing was like, I just, I'm selling the same thing. I'm just not selling it in the same way. Like I have to figure out how this guy's doing this. Like it's not an uncrackable code. And then I ran into this girl who she just was with him forever. She was like his right hand man. And she started doing, started on marketing agency like a year before. And I was basically like, well, I mean, can I hire you to just like talk to me about that experience? And we started chatting and we came to the conclusion that they were moving up market and they were leaving this like hole exposed that we could fill with a different product. And at the time I was like dealing a lot with this domainer guy and his great domain lead.com. It's like, okay, we're going to call it lead.com. 
I leased it from them, no dough up front, and we're going to like build this ESP that's up market. Because my whole thing was like, I want to do things that MailChimp's not doing. That was why the selling it with humans was interesting because MailChimp would never do that. Also, it's like, well, they're not serving this $900 a month guy. So I got to figure out who this guy is and how to sell to him. So Diana thought, well, we thought there was like a hole in the market. We start building this product, lead.com. And then, you know, like by the middle of last year, I'm really interested in this identity stuff. How I got interested in this identity stuff was I have this friend, Brian Urban. He runs a company called Bounce Exchange in New York. They're like a big enterprise SaaS marketing agency hybrid. They do this identity stuff. Some of my friends use his product and they were just raving about. So the first problem that he was solving was for e-commerce companies, abandoned carts are the most valuable emails, right? So nobody's logged into any of these websites anymore. But of the people that abandon cart, you probably have like 75 or 80% of their emails, but only about 15 are logged in. So if you can identify them by cross device ID or whatever and send them the abandons, then that's like a very clear value proposition for the e-commerce company. So I got all excited about this because my buddy was like, oh yeah, it works. Great. And everyone's going to do it if he can do this. So I'm like, dude, your TAM is like, you're selling to like Hearst Publishing and stuff like can I try to attack the mid-market with my ESP selling this identity technology because no one else has it? And it seems novel and interesting and the value is clear and all that stuff. So tried to do that, couldn't get any traction on it whatsoever. But one thing that somebody else mentioned about this identity thing, when I was kind of digging into it, he was like, what Urban's doing is sending emails to people that these people already have on their list. A whole part of the market exists which is underdeveloped and it's a bunch of small companies and it's gray area that you can do this with people that aren't on your list yet. So I set out to try to figure out how to do it. You know, my attitude is just like, well, these guys aren't Larry Page or whatever. I got to be able to do it. And that took maybe like seven or eight months to figure out how to actually put it all together on the back end. And then the idea was sticking inside a Roadly, this will finally be what gets Roadly to grow again. If I can go to you and say, I can get you 50% more opens and I can grow your list 10 times as fast as you're growing it right now by basically selling contact records of people that are on your website. Like who's not going to use that product. Right. So put it in Robly. Then I send one message to our existing customers and like 250 people just raise their hand to buy it. Like right then and we got like 5,500 customers, something like that. So I'm like, wow, that's interesting. And then got them on it. Like a month goes by and we're doing customer interviews with people and a couple different buyer avatars were like, this is a, an 11 out of 10 to the MPS question. I've already recommended it to a ton of people. It's the greatest thing ever. I'm like, how is that the case? So for these local magazines, like a lot of them sell. So we figured out it's super valuable for e-commerce. It's super valuable for publishers and some digital marketing type guys. It's also super valuable for too, for three different reasons. The publishers they sell their reach in one way or another. And these emails are cheaper than the next source of an email by like 70 or 80% most of the time. They seem to open at about half the rate because they didn't opt in, but they're still live email addresses. And I can explain how I know that when we talk about the technology. But you know, this magazine in particular, they're like, well, we sell the size of our list at $100 CPM and you're selling us emails at $250 CPM. So for 25 cents a record. So these pay back in literally just two and a half email sends 
ROI and the unsubscribe rate is like whatever, 1%. So it's just a, a staggering ROI for somebody that's on that model. So how do you, I mean, obviously it sounds amazing, but where's the magic in the engine? Because you're basically, it sounds like you're saying, I can give you a dollar and you can just give me $2 back. Where do you pull the other dollar from? I mean, we're not talking about money. We're talking about emails, but where do you get that from? So you want to know how the product actually gets these customer records? I guess that's the question. Yeah. Okay. So there's three parts to the product to get emails. One, we're pretty deeply embedded in the email ecosystem. There are networks of cookie providers that will allow you to basically, when someone takes action in an email newsletter, it will cookie their browser and put a hashed email in it, right? If somebody opens or clicks an email newsletter and that vendor is partners with LiveRamp, LiveRamp pays that vendor $7 CPM for new hashed email addresses. LiveRamp is de-identifying these email addresses and then they're like kind of selling it out to an ad network for all sorts of behavioral sort of products. So hashed email address, right? It's encrypted in MD5. MD5 is a one-way encoding language. So you can't unencode in MD5. A human being cannot do that. Neither can a machine. However, Adam at Roby.com and Adam at Roby.com will always encode the same MD5. Right. So if you just had text of every single person in America, email, first name, last name, then all you have to do is get your hands on these MD5s and you can, right, you can re-identify these de-identified people with a simple VLOOKUP, right? So this is basically what the product is. On one side... It's the cookie ID, which we have like 35% of the U.S. traffic cookie. And then there's some loss as you go to it. So the database partners are these like lead gen sites, like credit card, healthcare, lowermybills.com. Like an embarrassing amount of the U.S. has filled out one of these things sometime in the last few years. And the data is typically worthless after about six months or so because you just can't spam to it after that amount of time. But you know that the email address is alive because sometime in the last seven days or so, it actually took action in an email, right? It can't be a spam trap. It can't be dead. It is a human being that did that. And then you also know that that person was on their website. So like the person could have filled out the lead gen form two years ago. If the email matches, like it's a good record, right? Like because it's alive, it's on your website. Their first and last name definitely didn't change. So yeah, this is like the reason they're so cheap for other sources is it's taking previously totally worthless data and giving value to it because those two phenomena, right? So this became get emails. Exactly. So we called it Robly ID. Just one thing that I noticed as we're trying to pitch this thing is like, you know, I hired this girl, Diana. She's like an incredible salesperson. She's doing outbound, trying to sell Robly plus Robly ID with this new value proposition. People were buying Robly ID and not even using Robly horrible product experience, right? And like, if I was in the headspace of 37 Signals and Tim Ferriss, when I started my first company, I rented desk from this guy who was a Y Combinator startup in Austin called Dave Rogan Moser, his company's proof. And they're all about these Y Combinator values. And it's just like a totally different approach, right? It's like, have weekly growth goals, do things that don't scale, product market fit, like before anything. And like, there's so much content in their library, which is fantastic, by the way, if everybody hasn't dug through the entire Y Combinator library of content. I mean, basically, you know, 
I asked Dave, I'm like, what do you get from Y Combinator? He's like, well, you know, you make some connections, like it helps you raise investment capital like that, but you can literally learn and do learn everything that they actually teach you on their website. So I started digging into that stuff and like the description of what product market fit was like, once you sort of read and listen to all these guys talk about it, you know, it makes you sick if you don't like Robly doesn't really have it, right? Like it's hard for me to tell you why it's better than MailChimp. And I've tried to find different little ways to like find a little hole to fill. Just hadn't really worked. But one of the things about product market fit, which these guys all say is they're like, people will use and continue to use more of a horrible product experience. So we had huge people signing up for this SMB email marketing tool, not even using the ESP, putting the Robly ID code on and then manually downloading it and putting it in their ESP at the end of every day. And it's just like, okay, like that is a horrible experience and they just want more of it, you know? So the sort of reaction that our original customers had to just one email, like I never, you know, it's like, wow, this sounds great. It's like, well, maybe I'm a good writer. Maybe they trust me with products because they've been customers for a while. That was a good indicator. And then like between seeing how people were suffering through Robly ID, getting these like 11 out of 10 NPS question customer interviews. And then the other thing that was happening was you'd start like, you have an ESP, surely. If I start talking to you about why you should switch to my ESP, it almost doesn't matter what the feature is. You stop listening. Because I'm automatically all that work I'm going to have to do and switch and blah, blah, blah. That problem is solved. I'm not interested. If you eliminate the ESP discussion from this Robly ID discussion, people's faces were lighting up. You know, either you're fundamentally opposed to doing it because at an organizational level, you're like, I will not send email marketing that is not opt-in. It's too high risk to the organization. It's best practice to have an opt-in. Like if that's not who you are and you don't think this is fake, then you're just like, wow, I'll try that. You know, like, so then we're like, okay, we should really just make this another organization that I love and see other love is Dave Cancel, Drift. Like, I think this guy... He's a fucking genius. So I watched this guy at SAS Fest December of 2014, right when Robley's like prime stuck. Just started Drift like six months before. I started Robley two months before him. He's sitting up there giving a presentation. First of all, all it is is pitching Drift, which I thought was interesting. Everybody else was like talking about some big picture and very subtly pitching their product. All he's doing is pitching Drift. And at the end of it, he'd already raised like $10 million. And somebody asked him like, do you think this is going to work? He's like, I have no idea. <laughs> you know, that is unreal, you know? And then he just like kept his head down, like all this sort of like getting the product market fit. And then they essentially had a chat bot. Everything that they thought about originally was totally wrong, but they found this other great use case of booking demos for salespeople automatically. And then this category creation effort that he made in a space that was utterly crowded, right? There are a million chatbot companies, but they're conversational marketing and like, they created that category, wrote the book on it. And now he goes, you two crowd, there's conversational marketing is a category. It's them and like HubSpot and everybody else trying to copy them. So I think for what we're doing, it's so interesting. It's just the opposite of the email marketing conversation because there's 165 email marketing vendors. They're all selling virtually identical product, even if they're trying to go after different parts of the market. This, you talk to somebody, no one's heard of it. They're intrigued about it they'll do it in most cases. And it's just, it's like, if you sit there, read this Y Combinator stuff and yearn for what they're describing, that's what this sort of feels like. 
So get emails is on the market now. Is there anything, by the way, that influences your situation with GDPR and all this other stuff that's going on in Europe and now starting to come over here? First of all, this is can spam compliant. Most people don't realize that can spam in the U.S. is actually opt out and it's not opt in. And the reason we all think that it's opt in is because in order to build a successful and thriving email ecosystem, this belief had to be perpetuated so that spam filters and companies like MailChimp and ours and the ISPs like Gmail and Hotmail and Spam House and everybody, they had a mutual interest in convincing the world that opt-in email marketing is best practice and the way to do it. But it's not actually the law. And what matters more than anything else is your engagement with email marketing. It doesn't really matter where you get your list. If the complaints are low, people are opening, people are clicking in it, unsubscribes are low, it's fine. Now, the next question is, what about all of this coming California legislation? Even people that have looked at it and prepared their business for it, they all have a fundamental misunderstanding of what it is. So the assumption is, can spam is here. GDPR is more strict than CAN-SPAM, and the California legislation is also more strict than CAN-SPAM. Therefore, GDPR equals CCPA, which is not true. CCPA has nothing to do with opt-in email marketing. Interestingly, it doesn't even apply to anybody who doesn't have over $25 million in revenue, literally. You do not have to comply at all with anything. And to comply, it's basically privacy policy changes, You have to set up a bunch of stuff to where if a consumer comes to you and says, I want to see what data you've been collecting and I want you to delete that data and I want to opt out of data collection, you have to have mechanisms to do that. But if you have over 25 million in revenue and you've already done that, you probably to use get emails, just have to make a small privacy policy change. You may not have to do anything at all. It's just a different thing than GDPR. It's a different thing than Castle. It's not about opt-in email marketing. It will continue to be fine. And as far as the spam, the can spam law, the FTC reviewed that on February 19th of this year and said it looked totally fine. So I think we're in the clear for at least a few years on this. I mean, who knows? You never know with these things, but it's good that it looks that way. So currently you're sitting in South America, right? That is correct. Yeah. Visiting some team members you have down there. Now, so you've got Get Emails running, you've got Robly running. So What does this coming year look like for you? What are you planning for beyond that? So another interesting thing about getting notes, which I think your audience would appreciate, is I like try to not be this like manic CEO that's just like really excited about one thing and then like abandons it and like, now we're doing this. And I got it built on Upwork. I didn't want to take any resources from the mothership because the existing plan was still, until proven otherwise, the plan is... Robly ID is going to be a differentiating feature in Robly, and that's what we're doing. We're adding a bunch of features to Robly. It gets all the resources. I'm going to make this side bet, but no one from the mothership is going to touch it. And so we got it built. My CTO spent like a week and a half on it. We launched it November 1st, and then it's like just unbelievable. It's like the greatest example of like 15 people holding hands, like trying to will Robly forward. And like this thing, we build it on Upwork. Yeah. And like people are ripping it out of your hands. But to be fair, get emails is definitely standing on the platform. A lot of things Robly went through. No questions asked. But that's what people think. The people get the impression that, oh, I can do what get emails done and skip the Robly stuff. The experience and the learning and all, you can't, you can't skip it. Right, right. Absolutely not. But I just, 
highlight that as an example of what product market fit feels like and what it does. Yeah, exactly. No matter how many people I put on building this Robly thing, like it's going to be really hard to get it moving forward. If you have the right thing, it moves forward by itself almost. I mean, you have people out there. And that's that's a testament to, uh, I think, a good entrepreneurial quality is you have to, you definitely have to have a vision and you have to move towards that vision. But at the same time, you also have to constantly listening to the feedback and be willing enough to let go of your attachment to your own vision to address that feedback. You added Robley ID and then ultimately that became, that was the feedback, right? Like you were seeing the response to a feature like that. There was an element of asking questions. You ended up going to meetings, like searching for things and asking people, having your salespeople call people and looking at their reactions. When you get that 250 people raising hands, that's your indicator. Okay, let's, let's run with this. Let's do something. Your question was, what does 2020 look like? So every week that goes by, it's just more evidence that, you know, I'm a big believer in focus. We have me, my CTO, this girl who kind of runs everything for Robley, who's was doing product customer service and all that stuff. The three of us need to be fully extracted from working on Robley. And that's not easy. Yeah. So that's like a, a major priority for quarter one. You're going to try and do that in one quarter? So I had pretty successfully extracted myself and Anne, who was effectively the general manager of it. You know, it's not that complicated of a business. We had a sales guy, a few customer supports, a manager managing engineers. So for the last, I would say, four or five months, we've been talking about giving one of the other support reps more responsibility so he's a buffer between so she can get off of slack for a few hours a day and spend more time on product and stuff but that was actually a plan that we were executing for the Robley plan it's like you gotta take yourself out of the weeds you know we need to be product first and actually do stuff the right way from a product standpoint so we're just finalizing the details of this plan right now it probably will take a couple quarters but but basically replacing the idea is you have to replace yourselves. Yeah. The only reason it might be, we might be able to do it in quarters, we've been working towards that over the last two quarters, just not with like urgency. I feel like that's been a major theme for me the entire time I've been running the business, like constantly replacing myself. And it's always such a pain to do. Finding the right people, finding people who don't work out and then you have to get pulled back into it and then doing it again and doing it for all the different parts of the business. It seems like unless your starting point for business is, okay, I've got this many millions of dollars that's being invested into the business. I just hire all these people outright. But if you're doing it organically where you start doing stuff and then you bring people on at some point, you naturally have to move up the scale and bring people in under and it's always an ordeal. I have a closing question, but before I get into that, I just wonder... Is there anything just top of mind for you that that's something that you you seem to be somebody who spends a, a lot of time researching, talking to people, reading books, reading things? Is that something that you're doing now? And if so, what areas are you looking at for yourself? Absolutely. I mean, just always, you know, a thing that we never did with Robley was we never did any marketing. It was all just these phone sales. And I think this one, just because of the nature of the market and no one's ever heard of it is all marketing. Like if somebody reads a blog post about it, like the click through rate is high, you know, the conversion rate on that click is high. So there's like a ton of top of funnel stuff to do. 
one of the things about Dave Cancel, which I kind of mentioned a second ago, is this category creation thing. I'm like a big believer in this. Like if you can create, if you can convince the market that you invented something, you don't even have to have invented it. But if you can equate your brand to a term in the market's mind, a lot of value will accrue to you to being number one in the space, right? So I've been reading a bunch. There's three really good books on, on category creation. One is from like the, the 80s. It's called Positioning by Al Rees and Jack Trout. And that's not specifically about category creation. It's just how to think about brand positioning, one brand versus the other. Those guys nail it. One of the things they say are like, so we can all agree that being number one is valuable because most people, if they've heard of something, they won't listen to you. But if they haven't heard of it, they will stop and listen. So like intrinsic in that is huge value. So how do you be number one? You just show up the firstest with the mostest, right? So like, then there's guys who have really made brands around being category creation guys. The guy who started Gainsight, which was a customer success SaaS software. I didn't even know that existed. Probably the reason why he wrote a book like that. He's got a great book, good playbook. And there's another one called Play Bigger that are these guys who are in a consulting firm now and like they all sold unicorns or whatever. But they sort of talk about the types of things that you need to be doing if this is what you're trying to do, which is like educate a market, own a term, and then get your brand to be used interchangeably with that term. And the term that we picked was email-based retargeting. And yeah, I mean, we bought email-based retargeting.com, put this big guide on it. And just, I'm trying to, you know, do things that, that sort of use get emails and email-based retargeting interchangeably. So doing a lot of reading related to that, that's been most of it recently. You know, I want to like figure out how to write a book because I think this is another great thing to do when you're a category creator. Like if I can write the book, on email-based retargeting, then I show up as a speaker. You know, I have this great, like, I have this, like, sort of storyline or pitch called Permission Marketing. Seth Godin wrote this book called Permission Marketing in 1999. It's a year after Google came around. My whole argument is just, like, the notion that this is invasive, what we're doing, is so absurd when you consider what has happened in surveillance capitalism with Google over the last 20 years. Uh-huh. When you figure out what they know and what they do and what everyone has access to, even the government, it's just the notion that you wouldn't email someone who is on your website. The fact that you would be concerned about being that invasive is ridiculous, right? So we created a podcast called Permission Marketing. I want to like write this book, have it be called Permission Marketing, have it be about category creation. So yeah, the last few months I've been really trying to hone in on what the 2020-2021 playbook looks like for that. That's cool. But you know, in regards to that Google versus emailing people on your site thing, there's a difference between being invasive and not being seen, or let's not use the word invasive. We don't want to say that that's what it is, but there's a difference between doing something covertly and doing something on the surface. You know, the argument is like, if I email, you know, I'm doing it, but we don't know all the things that are going on. We should know, first of all. And second of all, they have a program that does ads in the inbox, <laughs> you know, Gmail ad. I mean, they're advertisements, they're, they're finite or whatever, but like I need to hone in on the storyline a little bit. It's not perfect yet, but I think there's something there. Well, nothing's ever perfect, but there is, there's definitely like, it's of this time, this conversation, because it's like, it's almost like you get dinged for being upfront about something. You actually opted into my list and there's like a thing where you feel bad about emailing too much or doing something with these own people who came to you. 
because there's so much talk about privacy, but so much stuff happens behind what we can see. So we put the focus on the stuff that we can see, which is actually above board. Exactly. I mean, it's a really interesting point. I hadn't even thought about that yet. I, I just knew that the storyline wasn't perfect yet. Another thing I've been reading a lot is like the Snowden book and like this woman wrote this book called Surveillance Capitalism because I'm trying to really nail this story down. As you said, I mean, permission marketing, the California legislation, like it just complements this category creation effort so well because it's, first of all, the product is controversial in itself. And every market has heard of permission marketing. So when you're out there just being this guy who's like yelling this permission marketing phrase, you know, but then it's actually got some like intellect behind it. I just, I think it's a great, I think it's a great PR. And do you feel resonant in your personality that you're okay with where that's going to lead? Like for example, this guy who did Drift gets up on stage, pitches, talks about his product the whole time, but he knows he doesn't know how it's going to work out. But People give them all this money. To me, I'm like, I would be scared to death for somebody to give me $10 million before I figured out something that's going on. That's a personality type, right? He can do it. Totally. I mean, we'll see. I'm excited about it now, but I think it's also just because it's working so well. We figured out that publishers were going to be a good avatar. There was a publisher conference like three days later in Philly. I went there and there was a startup package. I gave a 20 minute speech to the entire conference and like, Everybody else's speech, everybody's on their laptop and like on their iPhones and stuff. I'm like, I look up at one point and it's just like eyeballs staring through my head. You know, it's just like really publishers. The whole thing right now also is this privacy stuff and third party data sucks and cookies are going away and all that stuff. And I'm just like, I'm about to give a very controversial talk. I'm going the exact opposite way of everything you've heard up to this point. You know, the way that this stuff is going, it's basically like all just coming down from legislation. Nobody really knows what it all means, but everybody's trying to comply with it but there's no clear picture. So there's just always this whole like cacophony of responses and reactions. It's definitely that thing in the room where 250 people will raise their hands. So you seem to be all about going after those things. That's really of the time. It's really interesting. So for people who maybe are at the beginning of their entrepreneurial journeys or somewhere else, do you feel that there's a piece of advice that you like to impart to people who are going down this path? Well, I would say read everything on Y Combinator's website. Try to really get a sense for what product market fit means. Don't scale or raise capital if you have to, or if you can, before you have it. It will just lead to heartache. And then another thing that just, I for some reason, always pops into my head because I did this, and I see people who start you know, all sorts of different types of things, and they do this. Don't hire your friend who doesn't have a job to help you out with stuff. You know what I mean? Like this idea that it's like the guy told me, why would you not just go find the best sales guy you could find right now? Once you've suffered through a few of the wrong people in the wrong positions and replace them with someone who's the right person for the job, you start to see like this person on their first day was like years ahead of where I was ever going to coach this other person to. Well, and the key there too is you shouldn't have to coach somebody to do a job. Exactly. Especially if you can't do it. Which is a hard thing to learn too. If you care about these people and you want them to like develop or whatever. I also still love the 30, I mean, I wouldn't probably waste my time on four hour work week. I think it's got some interesting ideas, but I still love the 37 signal guys approach to stuff. I'd read rework. I'd read remote, but definitely take in the others, the Y Combinator opinion on how to go about doing this too. And then decide what's right for you. You know, the Y Combinator guys say, well, the rework guys, they're basically just running restaurants that sell 
that's their analogy for any business that's not infinitely scalable. It's a, it's a restaurant that like makes enough money to pay these salaries. And that's a great life. I mean, I've been doing the restaurant thing the last three years. It's a great life. This time around, I'm excited about the growth part of it because I agree with what Y Combinator says. It's like growth is the lifeblood of an organization. It also comes down to what the objective is. And from their perspective, that makes a lot of sense because it's an investing game. These things are investments. But if your business is a lifestyle business and that's your objective, then it's not about all of the things that it is about. Some of these cross-pollinate, like some of these things are important to both sides, but it definitely is about where you want to take your business and what you want it to be and how you want to live your life inside the business in terms of what decisions you make. Another thing that just popped into my head, talk to everybody about your idea, especially successful entrepreneurs. I think for people getting started, they have the tendency to think that someone's going to go out and do what they're doing. But like anybody who could successfully do that is already working on something that they think is more worthwhile than what you're working on. And the odds, especially with people that are good and have been doing it for a while, the odds that they can connect you with someone who can actually help you versus the odds that they'll steal your idea and like somehow take what you're doing and be successful with it. It's like, they can probably connect you with somebody that can help. Right. They can give you a lot more good things than the fear why people don't do it. And one of those things too is because of their experience, they have this vision into like the matrix of the idea from a seed to fully growing. So they can tell you from today without you doing anything, oh, that's not going to work. And they know because they can see it. And so it can save you a lot of time or they can say, oh, if that's going to work, you need to do it this way. In which case you would have spent like four years, five years trying to figure that out for yourself. Cool. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Adam. Thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. Thank you, Eric. It's been fun. Living the, <laughs> the torture, <laughs> the agony. <laughs> I wish you the best with everything that's coming this year. So just in case, so we've got everything, the sites where people can find out and learn more about what we talked about in regards to you are? Get emails dot com get emails.com and then robly.com is the esp and there's a podcast link on get emails i've like recorded 17 episodes that are just basically answering all the questions everybody has and you can get a good sense of kind of what i'm all about just by watching those i mean i, have, I don't have a real online presence or anything but that's an exposure to what we got going on our personalities like all that stuff awesome thanks so much adam And that's a wrap for our first episode of the Subscription Entrepreneur Podcast in 2020. I'd like to extend my sincere thanks to Adam for coming on the show and to you for listening to the entire episode. I hope you're walking away with some ideas, insights, and inspiration that will help you along your own path as an entrepreneur. For the complete show notes, a transcript, and links to all the resources we mentioned in today's episode, head over to subscriptionentrepreneur.com slash 138. We have a lot of great episodes coming up this year, so be sure to stay tuned and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. We'll see you next time.